Today's Bible reading will come from John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40, and Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Now, this is, uh, so, so as you know, we've been going through uh, this year through a series of head, heart, hands and holy worship as our sort of overarching theme for the year. And this is one of our uh, head sermons and they um, pretty much always fall on the Lord's Supper Sundays. And so uh, we've been working through the key doctrines in our head sermons of, of a reformed understanding of Scripture. And so today we're looking at the next one of these, which is the doctrine of irresistible grace. Now, just to remind you of where we are in our series, so that those who've missed the previous ones can be brought up to speed quickly, and for those of you who were here when we uh, talked about these things, you can remember what we actually said. Um, uh, it's, it's important for us to understand this doctrine in its context, because uh, the doctrine of irresistible grace is the next in a logical step of, uh, of sort of doctrinal thinking. Now, the logical chain we're talking about here are these doctrines that develop one from another and is summarized uh, by the acronym TULIP. So sometimes you'll see in church circles people talk about TULIP being the, uh, you know, sort of the defining characteristic of Reformed theology. And there is some truth to that. So uh, we've been looking at these five doctrines in our head sermons. And we start with the T of the TULIP acronym. And that is the doctrine of total depravity. And as we looked, we saw that the Bible's um, consistent message is that our hearts, apart from God, are so desperately wicked that we will continue always to choose to rebel against Him, that we would always go our own way. And so we asked the question, why do we keep on doing the evil and the wicked things that even we don't really want to do? Why is it that even though we know that we will regret this thing, whatever it is, um, the normal human being will go ahead and do the thing that you will regret? Why is that? Why is it that we never seem to learn our lesson? And as we explored that, we, we saw that this was because at the very core of our being, our hearts are broken. The core of who we are is rebellion against God and, and our hearts want nothing to do with God. And so in our natural state, we will continually reject God. That is, we are totally uh, depraved. Our nature, outside of God's work in our hearts, is total depravity. 
And so unless God intervenes, we will continue to reject God. That's the T. So let, moving on to the U of TULIP is unconditional election. So the logical chain is that if we will always choose to reject God, unless God fixes our hearts, then God's choice to uh, elect some people is not because there is any good in them. That's the logical conclusion of that. We cannot claim that God, at the very beginning of the universe, kind of looks into the future and sees how good we would have been, and so on that basis elects us and chooses us. No. If we are totally depraved, as is Scripture's uh, you know, view on things, then if God chooses to work in our hearts, that is, if He calls us, if He elects us, then it is entirely unconditional on our own goodness. That is why, you know, Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how the gift of faith is a gift from God so, and not by works so that no one can boast. So that's unconditional election. So because we're totally depraved, our election is unconditional on our goodness. Now the next logical link in the chain is the L, that is of limited atonement. Limited atonement is an unfortunate name. Because people think it means that we believe that Jesus' work on the cross is limited in, in the scope of the individual human. So that is, Jesus died only for some of our sins, but not all of our sins. But that's not at all what that word actually means. The doctrine of limited atonement is that God doesn't save everyone. He elects some and chooses whom he will save. So that's the next logical link in the chain. If God can elect some people unconditionally, it also means that he then doesn't elect some others. Uh, and Jesus himself says this in Matthew 22, verse 14. He said, For many are called, but few are chosen. So that is total depravity. It means our election is unconditional. And because election is unconditional, it means that not everyone is chosen. Uh, some are not elect and therefore the atonement is limited to the elect. And that brings us to today's topic, which is the next link in the chain, and that is of irresistible grace. Now to define it, the doctrine of irresistible grace says that if God has elected us, if we are chosen, then we cannot reject God's call on us. We cannot reject the faith that he gives us. Or to put it another way, it is the doctrine that says that the Holy Spirit never fails to bring the elect to faith. Now everyone who is elect then, everyone who is chosen by God will come to faith. God never fails to convert any of those who are chosen by him. None who have been called uh, to, to be elect can ever ultimately reject God. That is in essence, what the doctrine teaches us. That is why we call it irresistible grace. You cannot, uh, you cannot reject God if he calls you. No evil in the human heart can withstand the power of God's electing Holy Spirit. It is like this kind of spiritual wave, if you like, that overwhelms the evil and the rebellion in the human heart so that those who are chosen, who are elect, will, without fail, 100% of the time, come to faith in Jesus, to trust in his work on the cross. Every time, 100% of the time, throughout all the ages. Now, when I was at college, we had a lecturer, his name is Alistair, and um, he used to say, now, if you have half a brain, you will do this. So he often 
talked of himself that way and also of his students as well. Uh, and if we have half a brain and we hear the doctrine of irresistible grace, we will immediately come up with two questions which we should think about. Uh, two immediate questions that come from this doctrine. The first is, is this actually what the Bible teaches? Is it biblical? Does the Bible actually teach the doctrine of irresistible grace? And if so, uh, where does it do so? So let's prove the doctrine from Scripture. The second is, if it's true, do we have free will? And I think that's probably for most people the more difficult one. Because we are in a Reformed church and we do believe that this is scriptural, but let's first look at what the Bible actually says. So what's the biblical basis for irresistible grace? I'd like to argue that uh, this actually permeates Scripture. You actually can catch glimpses of this doctrine throughout the Bible, but perhaps the most best-known place is in the passage we read before, which is John 6, uh, verse 37 to 40. So we're going to work through this um, sort of verse by verse, and we're going to break it down and see how we go. Now, Notice what Jesus says here. He says, um, he's, so in the context, Jesus is busy talking to his disciples. He's just fed the 5,000, and then after that, he walks on water. So there's been these two massive miracles that prove Jesus' divinity. And he takes this opportunity to teach his disciples about how it is that people are saved. So his disciples are asking him, you know, um, how do people come to faith? How does God save people? And Jesus lays out very clearly, actually, the doctrine of irresistible grace. He says that everyone who the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now what we have to understand from this is that the Father, that is God, has chosen some people on earth to be His. This is the doctrine of unconditional election. God has chosen some. They are part of His design will. God wants for them to be saved. These are the people that Jesus refers to as those whom the Father has given me. And so what does Jesus say about them? He says, does He say, you know, one or two of those who the Father gives me will come to me? Or does he say some of those that the Father gives me will come to me? Or even the majority of those who the Father gives me will come to me? No, he says everyone. Everyone who has been chosen, everyone who is elect, everyone who has been given to Jesus will come to him. Not they might come to him if they feel like it, not they might possibly worship him if he promises to give them health and wealth and a happy life. But everyone, everyone will come to me. And then I'm going to skip to verse uh, 39 and hopefully this works. There we go. This is the Father's will. So this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he's given me, but should raise them up on the last days. So God's will is that all who are chosen, none of them would be lost. Now friends, I would like to suggest to you that you cannot read verses like this from the mouth of our very Lord and Saviour and claim that God's grace, His choosing grace, is in fact resistible, that we can reject God. In fact, it's precisely because of Bible passages like this that it is so critical for us to accept this doctrine as true. 
Because the reality is, if we don't believe in the doctrine of irresistible grace, because of passages like this, either Jesus is a liar, or God the Father is so powerless and impotent that he cannot overwhelm our, overwhelm our hearts. So if irresistible grace isn't true, then we're only left with these two alternatives. Either God's will is not strong enough to overrule the rebellious human hearts in us, because he says here, Jesus says here, that it is God's will that none of those who have been chosen will be lost, right? So if we, believe, uh, if we don't believe in irresistible grace, then God's will must not be strong enough to overpower the human will. Or... Jesus must be lying when he says this. And if that were true, then the rest of our salvation fall apart, falls apart because Jesus himself would not be sinless. So you see how important this doctrine is for us to hang on to. Maybe it's for this reason that Paul in Romans makes such a very uh, clear claim. He, he makes this kind of logical chain. He links the process of salvation and he says in, in verse 30 there, those he, um, uh, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. There is this chain of predestination to calling. Now the calling Paul talks about here is using a single word, but it's the entire process of the Holy Spirit working in the person's life, fixing and redeeming their heart to the point where they can actually understand and accept God's, um, uh, you know, the call of the gospel. It fixes the person's heart. It offers the gift of salvation to that person so that those he predestined, he also calls in that sense. And those he calls, he also justifies. And those he justifies, he also glorifies. To be justified means that our sins are forgiven. We are made right with God. And the chain is that if you have been predestined, then you are called. And if you are called, then you are justified. And if you are justified, then you will also be glorified. So if we are predestined, we are, from God's sense, already saved. It is because there is this chain. So, uh, so it is an, a doctrine that I think the Bible teaches very clearly. It's something that we need to hold on to because I think it's very important to us. Um, I think it's clearly biblical. I think we can unequivocally say that this doctrine is biblical and it's critical for us to hold on to. Now the problem is that if that's true, we have to deal with the question of how does free will intersect with this? How is it that God, through his Holy Spirit, can effectually call us... Uh, redeem our evil heart and rebellious heart and how can the bible say that everyone who's predestined is called and everyone who's called is justified and so on if god doesn't take away our free will can irresistible be grace be true and us still have a will that is free do we still have free will as christians now before we answer that question i need to I think we need to think very carefully about what it means to have a free will. Because when we ask this question, I think what we think of is, are we free to reject God's calling? Are we free to reject the offer of salvation? And to answer this properly, we need to think carefully about, about what we mean by God's calling. Because there are two different types of calls, so to speak. 
There is the outward call to repent and believe. So if someone, uh, what, what we mean by this is if someone shares the gospel with you and says, well, this is how salvation works. Jesus, you know, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He, uh, he takes the sin of all those who believe on him, uh, in him on himself and he pays for their, for their sin. Uh, that's the outward call. And we share that with the person and we urge them to repent and believe, to come and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That is an outward calling. It's someone sharing the gospel with you. Can you reject that call? Obviously, the answer is yes to that. But there is a second calling that is the calling that we're talking about here, which is an inward calling. And it is that that Paul is talking about in Romans 8, where he says that those who are predestined are also called. This is an inward calling. This is the call of God we're talking about uh, when we say, can we reject it? Do we have free will to reject that inward call of God for the predestined person? Do we have the free will to reject God's calling, as Paul puts it? Well, what does it mean to actually be free? Because the reality of the matter is that actually we don't have free will unless God already has been working on our hearts, right? If total depravity is true, if our hearts are wicked and sinful and so beyond knowing that only God can understand it, and we, our natural uh, state is that we would reject God, then we actually don't have free will outside of God having already fixed and regenerated our hearts. Without the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, all we can do is reject God. We are not free to accept Him, so to speak. We don't have a free choice. Our will is not free. We are slaves to sin outside of the Holy Spirit working in us. And so the truth of the matter is we actually only have free will after the Holy Spirit has regenerated our hearts, has fixed our hearts to the point where we are no longer a slave to sin. It's only after the Spirit has worked in us that we actually get to choose freely. And it is on this point that I think our understanding as Reformed people of Scripture shines through so beautifully and brightly because, because what we believe is that we have a choice to accept God's gracious gift in salvation by Jesus. We are truly free and yet that choice is fully orchestrated and ensured by God in a way that there is no logical contradiction. Now how does that work? So I'm going to ask you to bear with me for one moment because we're going to go right back in history and we're going to look at one of our confessions. So as a church we, we hold to three, we call them the three forms of unity. The Heidelberg Catechism, which we tend to use as a sort of a professional faith training tool for our young people. The Canons of Dort and the Belgic Confession. And we're going to look at some of what the Canons of Dort speak about. Now this was uh, kind of the writings of a whole bunch of people that came together who were dealing with various heresies that were happening in the church in around 1650. But this document, which we hold to and still believe in today, um, sits lower than Scripture. It's not the Bible, but we do believe that it accurately summarizes Scripture. And so this is what the Canons of Dort says about how this works. And I think this is very helpful for us. So, let's see if I can make this work. Alright, so this is, uh, how does the Holy Spirit work in conversion? 
So that might be a little bit small, but I'm going to read this because it is so helpful. So moreover, when God carries out this good pleasure in his chosen ones or works true conversion in them, he not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God. But by the effective operation of the same regenerating spirit, he also penetrates into the inmost being of man that opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, circumcises that which is uncircumcised, uh, and he infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, and the unwilling one willing, and the stubborn one compliant. He activates and strengthens the will so that, like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good deeds. So what they're actually saying there is that God makes sure that everyone who is predestined, he's elect, he makes sure that there will be someone in their life who will actively share the gospel with them. Isn't that wonderful? It means that when you share the gospel with someone else, it may be that God is using you as that part of the puzzle, that his Holy Spirit is sending you to share this outward gospel message with someone. He, he chooses, um, he not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly, so he sends us, his people, to share the gospel. But not only that, he ensures that when that person hears the gospel, he enlightens their minds powerfully so that they may rightly understand it. So what this is saying is that unless God is working, the person isn't going to have someone explain the gospel to them, and if they had, they wouldn't be able to understand at a deep spiritual level the truth in it. But also that God... Um, penetrates into the innermost being of that person and, and opens their closed heart, softens the heart, circumcises that which is uncircumcised. So he fixes the capacity of the person's heart and their mind to actually understand at a deep spiritual level the truth of what is being shared. And then finally, he changes that person's will. He infuses, it says, new qualities into the will, making that which is dead alive, evil good, unwilling, willing, and stubborn, compliant. So even the person's will will reject God unless God is working in the person's will to change it. It is only the redeemed will, the one on which the Holy Spirit has already been working, that can respond in faith and repentance to God. And so all of that depends on God. It is God who sends someone to outwardly share the gospel. It is God who fixes the person's mind so they can understand the message. It is God who fixes the person's heart so they can receive the message. And it is God who fixes the person's will, making it alive so they can respond to that message freely. All of that is from God. And for every elect person ever, God has done that. Every single person whom God has chosen has come to him in this way. And what, do they, what happens when this happens? They find that they actually have faith. They obey and respond. 
the canons of Dort continue. It says, This grace of regeneration does not act in people as if they were blocks and stones. And it doesn't abolish the will and its properties or coerce the reluctant by force, but it spiritually revives and heals and reforms in a manner that is at once pleasing and powerful, bending the will back to God. And as a result, a ready and sincere obedience through the Spirit now begins to powerfully prevail where the rebellion and resistance of the flesh were completely dominant. It is in this that the true spiritual restoration of the freedom of the will consists. Now what they're saying there is that our will is so bent out of shape that we would constantly reject God. And it's only once God fixes our will that we actually can choose him. So the human will is set free by the Holy Spirit. It bends it back into the shape that God desired for it to have before the fall of sin. And as a result... We always obey. Every single person for whom God has done that responds in faith and repentance. It is entirely a gift of God that is dependent on God. He restores the will, He fixes the heart, He changes us from the inside. None of that depends on us. He gives us this free gift of faith as he fixes our will. And in response to that, we find that we are fully free. And the person who is fully free will only ever choose to follow God. And that's why I think our understanding of this is so much better than any alternative option. It is only this understanding that rightfully holds the tension between God's action and our responsibility. Or to put it perhaps another way, it is only once God has redeemed our hearts, healed and regenerated our insides, that we are truly set free. And in no one ever in whom this work is done, no one of those people will ever reject God, because they cannot. Because at the deepest soul heart level, the only free choice that makes sense, at the very deepest level, is to trust and obey God. Those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. It will happen. As my dad says, if you have been elected by God, you can run but you cannot hide. So you may as well stop running. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. Wondering whether you have drifted so far from God that you have somehow fallen outside of his plan. Friend, you can run, but you cannot hide. As Psalm 139 says, Where can I go? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, there you are also. If I go to the east or the west, there your hand will hold on to me. Or perhaps you find yourself wondering if you can ever escape this deep inward calling that you have been feeling for so long. 
that you have rejected by God, friend, you will lose that battle. And the Lord will win. Because those he calls, he justifies. Those he predestines, he calls. Those he calls, he justifies. And those he justifies, he also glorifies. And maybe you are finding yourself in the place where you have been thinking about someone, you've been sharing the gospel with them, and you're wondering whether your efforts are ever going to pay off. This doctrine gives us great encouragement because the Holy Spirit sends people just like us to outwardly share the gospel so that they can inwardly respond to what is already true. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And I think that gives us great encouragement and great courage to keep going. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you that you're not a God of um, entirely mysterious and esoteric things that we cannot understand, but that actually uh, our faith makes a lot of good logical sense. And that even this doctrine of irresistible grace is, uh, is consistent with the other things that you teach us about our depravity, about our election, about our own uh, nature. And yet at the same time, You've arranged for things to, uh, to work here in a way that both glorifies you as the one who acts and wills in us, but also that maintains our free will. Only you, Lord, could have come up with a scheme like this. And so we thank you and we glorify you. We thank you that you call us and that because you call us, you also save us and justify us and make us right with you. And that you also promise that we will be fully glorified again with you in, in, uh, in your kingdom to come. And so we praise you, Lord, that we can with great assurance go from here this morning, knowing that our efforts in evangelism will not fail because you are the one who works in the hearts of the, those you are called. And if our efforts do fail, Lord, it's not because we have failed, but it's because you, we are working with people who outside of your sovereign will. We thank you that uh, we can have great encouragement that we cannot, if we are your chosen people, we cannot wander so far from you that we can be snatched from your hand. That we are continued, uh, that we are promised that we will continue in your presence. But if we are wandering, Lord, oh please we ask that you will bring us back so that we can uh, once again live according to the gracious gift you have given us. And Lord, if we are still running from you to begin with, and yet we feel this deep call uh, within us, humble us, we pray, O Lord, so that we will stop, listen and respond because of the work you have already done in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.